You're listening to the South Gippsland Shire Council Election Podcast 2021. As I sit here and acknowledge the Bunurong and Gurnai Kurnai people as traditional custodians of South Gippsland, and we all pay respect to their elders, past, present, and future, for they hold the memories, traditions, culture, and hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of Australia and of our Shire. Let's get into it. On this episode, you hear from Nathan Hersey running in the Streslecki Ward. This episode was recorded on Saturday, the 2nd of October. We kicked off at about 9am and I like the conversation we have at the end, towards the end of the podcast about showing up. Enjoy. All right, today I'm here with Nathan, Nathan Hersey from Streslecki Ward. He's not unfamiliar with the political world. He has a farm that's uh, registered as Scottish Highland Cattle Breeders, committed to regenerative farming practices, conservation breeding of heritage livestock, soil health and quality produce. And if we scale, if I scale all the candidates from sceptical to least sceptical about my podcast, Nathan would definitely be the least sceptical. He was the first to sign up without any conversation. And all he said was, you can talk to me about anything as long as it's relevant and interesting. So um, I thank Nathan for the, his openness and willingness to come and have a chat today. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's, it's an exciting opportunity. Awesome. Well, same question for everyone, Nathan. What's your favourite childhood memory? For me, childhood memories uh, that are favourite or that I'm fond of always um, are around family. We, I didn't always have the best family life. It was not to say that it was terrible, but didn't always have the best family life. But we certainly had great times as a family, uh, particularly this, there's a couple of things that really stand out. I should say I am 34 years old. So for me to go back into what my childhood memories are, it's probably a little bit uh, more recent than some of the other candidates. So we're hoping it's, you know, uh, <laughs> we're hoping it's going to be uh, clear for me. But anyway, we'll see. Um, my grandparents lived in Lake Tyres Beach, uh, right opposite the surf beach and just up the road from the, uh, the lake there. <clears throat> and we, I grew up in Maui, um, it, which for you know, a lot of people know is not a very um, uh, well-off area. People sort of refer to it as low socioeconomic. I grew up in Maui, was there for 18 years. And for us to have holidays with four kids in the family, it was usually to places that were affordable. Um, we would go down to Balnaring and we would go around, you know, to different places along the coast down this way to Inverloch and whatnot. But Lake Tyres Beach was always a favourite. And I remember sitting with my family and in particular my nana, um, who's a very fit and uh, healthy woman, down at the beach in between the lake where the lake and the surf beach um, sort of creates a sandbar and having an absolutely incredible time there uh, just in the sun you know with our, our beach gear and umbrellas and and everything and I just remember it being such a nice environment you know friendly inviting and I love that sort of coastal feel of 
um, a relaxed, laid back place, which Lake Ties Beach certainly is. But the thing that stands out to me for that particular day was <clears throat> that the ocean was a bit choppy and the lake was very full. And we happened to be there on a time or at the time when the lake was, I suppose, at full capacity. A ginormous wave came over the sandbar and went right through where we were sitting and took my nana's sunglasses, which I remember she was pretty upset about, a few of our other things and washed it into the lake. And then after that, and this is not like a small, anyone who, who knows it understands it's not really a small stretch of beach. This is like quite a wide sandbar um, when it's at, you know, at its best. And then the lake um, responded with, you know, as the wave sort of went back towards the ocean with opening up into the ocean and pulled the sand away. And before we knew it, there was a, a like a river of water going from the lake back into the ocean. It was just this combination of a great time with the family, something I'd never experienced before in the lake opening up with me being right there. Uh, and also something that we can sort of look back on and go, gee, you know, maybe we're a little bit lucky that we were where we were at that time to see it, but we're also lucky that we didn't get washed into the, into the, uh, you know, the river. Obviously it started off a little bit light on, but um, it, gee, it got, got a pretty big torrent going up um, pretty quickly. So that's, you know, just a very fond memory that I have spending time down there at Lake Tyres Beach with my, my brothers, my sister, uh, my parents and my grandparents. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that uh, I suppose a lot of us can relate to is having time with family in a relaxed environment and, and the importance of that. I'm glad that story ended the way it did. I had visions of you guys just being washed out to sea there for a second. Uh, only, so. I think only the sunglasses were the uh, were the ultimate the, victim. The, the casualty. <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear. Good to hear. Um, and uh, you have a farm up in Lock. And how long have in you been Car down on that? Carambara, sorry. Carambara is the farm. Yeah. Right. Um, well, this is a place we used to stop into. I'm, I'm in my house in Lock right now, and it's a magnificent little spot. I can see out over the farms, and uh, we're literally two streets from the main street. Uh, so we've got the best of being able to go into the village and um, also that rural feel at the same time. We have a farm in Currumburra. Uh, it's only 50 acres. I suppose we would call that small scale compared to a lot of the farms around. And we've also got cattle down where our old property was in Warara West uh, on a neighbour's property there. They've got 100 acres that is in terrible condition and our highlands are helping to clean that up at the moment. Um, so we've got 50 acres here and, and we're probably using about another 80 um, on a rotation down that way. So we had a farm at Warara West since 2014. Uh, we actually initially bought it as a bit of a project i'm not i'm not a person who sits still um, we bought it as a project and as somewhere to have as a camping block uh, initially it was just vacant land and it was let go for around I, I believe 15 years someone had been slashing the tops of the three hills um and that was it basically so the whole property was covered in bracken blackberry ragwort thistles you know, it looked like an absolute disaster zone. 
And we, the, the intention wasn't, we didn't buy it to farm. We bought it because my wife wanted somewhere where she could do some, um, you know, grow fruit trees and, and have some veggies and a bit more space that was away from where we were living. And I just love that feeling of getting out and having somewhere that's a little bit more remote, looking at the stars and, and having a bit of a, you know, a, a weekend or some time away. But what became very evident very quickly was that uh, in all of our attempts to clean up the gullies of the Blackberry and clean up the hills of the ragwort, and I'm talking weeds that were as tall as me, um, we needed some help. And goats were not going to do it because the fencing was completely inadequate. Uh, if you could even call it fencing, a lot of about a kilometre of the boundary was fenced by um, blackberry and there was no fence there there was at one stage but it was gone and um, so I needed something to help to get on top of the weeds uh, otherwise I was spending every weekend down there slashing and and deheading ragwort and you know just basically it was a never-ending uh, journey of weed um, destruction I suppose or that was the attempt so we did some research and found that Highland, Scottish Highland cattle actually eat a variety of um, weeds that a lot of other cattle don't eat. And that we felt after doing quite a lot of research that they would be a good mix um, for us because they didn't need as much sort of care and maintenance as other cattle breeds, but also the right uh, breed for that sort of very steep hilly terrain that's down that way. So we bought three Scottish Highland cattle off a guy in Dollar uh, who I've become quite good friends with over the years and um, they all came in calf and they began to make their way through trampling down bracken and blackberry and, and helping us in that process. Um, we didn't want to sort of destroy the bush that was there. There's five acres of bush and a temperate rainforest. We wanted to restore that. In fact, one of the other things we did once we got the weeds under control was we planted about 300 indigenous species uh, back onto the land. Um, some didn't survive because a neighbor decided to slash them, but you know, not everybody has the same vision, uh, but a lot of them are still there and has created koala habitat and, and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, so that's how we got into the Scottish Highland cattle. They, um, they sort of, we came into it by, a mistake in a way of trying to find what was the right animal for this climate, this environment, and that would help us clean up a property. So the three all were in calf. They very soon turned to six, which turned to more, and we bought some more and then adopted some more. And I think we've got 45 now. Um, and it's become a bit of a, um, an actual breeding program. We're registered with the Scottish Highland Society and I'm on the... Um, I'm on the committee for the Australian Highland Cattle Society and it's become a passion. So we bought 50 acres in Currumburra earlier this year so we could have the cattle closer to home and sold our property at Warara West to some other people who are continuing with our, our vision of getting that cleaned up and having it as a space for, um, for the wildlife and the you know, southern brown bandicoots that are there and all this you know, different plants and frogs and everything it's quite a unique little space in my opinion but yeah so that's I suppose how we got into Scottish Highland cattle in the long in a long story <laughs> and that's how you 
<laughs> settled in and now you're locked into the region and you thought you'd put your hand up again uh, to serve others. And that's the first three words in the Sentinel Times this week is uh, why are you running for council? And your first three words are service to others. Do you want mm. to talk, talk to that service to others and how you sit in that yeah. world and your history there? <clears throat> so some people will know from reading about me and those who know me that um, I have been involved in politics for the past eight and a half years. I took a voluntary redundancy in February this year and decided that it was time for a change in direction, a slight change. Um, but working in politics and, and being involved in something greater than myself that can change the world for the better has always been something that I've wanted to do and, and that I've enjoyed being a part of. So I actually got into politics by um, mistake, I suppose, much like Scottish Highland Cattle, which has happened. Um, I actually had studied first business management and human resources management many years ago and worked in that for a little while before deciding, as interesting as it was, it wasn't that rewarding to me personally. So I went and did further studies in intercultural studies and I did an internship with Global Interaction, which is the Baptist Union's arm of, uh, you know, their aid um, arm, I suppose. And my intention was to move into aid and development work, which was something I'd always been very interested in. I'd also done some work with Indigenous communities in uh, the Northern Territory and also in Northwest Western Australia with the Mardu people. And um, so in the Northern Territory, I sort of worked on community projects there and, and led teams into getting hospitals uh, up and running or so they could become hospitals. There was a, a medical centre that was applying to become a hospital um, that didn't have car parking and they just could not get anybody to do it. So I took a team of people and we made car parking. So basic, so simple, um, and yet it benefited the community in such a, a dramatic way to get their you know, the, the medical centre changed to a hospital status and have uh, much better funding and, and resources there. And then in Western Australia, I led a couple of teams to different trips up there to do um, uh, build a community centre for the Māori people. They had been gifted a parcel of junky land that was left in a pretty bad state with car bodies and just an old shed and whatnot. And... Um, the council had gifted it to the Māori people and then gave them a time frame of, well, you need to get it in order by this time, otherwise it may be, you know, used for another purpose. And uh, so together with funds from BHP and other volunteers, we actually completely transformed it into a usable community space for the Māori up there and, um, you know, handed it over and uh, walked away and left it to, to the community to have as what they wanted. It's, you know, it was never about us. It was always about what they needed. So anyhow, whilst I was doing all of this, I was working managing at a restaurant on the Mornington Peninsula and I met an old guy called Bruce who was a regular customer. And he always said to me, what on earth are you doing here? Wasting, in his words, wasting your time when you've got so much potential. I said, well, Bruce, I've got to do something while I'm studying and while I'm doing these other, you know, small endeavours that are paying me nothing. Um, I have to be able to pay my mortgage and survive, you know. <laughs> and um, he said, look, I'm going to introduce you to someone um, and I think they'll be able to help you find a job 
in aid and development that pays properly and in something that you'll be, you know, feel more satisfied in doing. Not there's anything wrong with managing a restaurant. I've had my own hospitality businesses as well and um, that we started from scratch and built up and sold. Uh, hospitality is a very important industry. Just for me, I wanted to be involved in something that was um, personally more uh, rewarding that made me feel like I was making a difference and impacting uh, the world and serving others. So I went, I was introduced to a member of parliament, um, a federal member of parliament. I sat down and I had lunch with this member of parliament and I discussed about what it was that I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. And the member of parliament said to me, I'm very, very intrigued and very interested in what it is that you do and where you want to go. I don't know anything that would suit you right now, but would you come and work for me? And I had this opportunity just given to me at a lunch meeting over the table. And I said, yeah, okay. Like just on the spot, I thought, why not? What have I got to lose? You know, if, I, if it's not for me, whatever. At the time, I was not a member of any particular political party. Um, I had always had an interest in, in politics, but I wasn't uh, involved in any way. So I took up a job working for a federal member and uh, within a year, I had found myself being uh, approached and poached by another member of parliament who was impressed with my, uh, my work and my performance and what it was that I was doing there. And I moved to, a, to another member of parliament, which was into a cabinet position um, in small business. <clears throat> so I worked there for, uh, until that was with Bruce Bilson until he retired. Um, and then uh, after that, I went to work with Chris Kruther, who is a Liberal member of parliament, uh, or was a Liberal member of parliament for the Dunkley area. And then following that, I went back to work with um, Greg Hunt uh, in the health portfolio up until earlier this year when I took my redundancy and decided that it was time um, to look at something else. It was a massive task working in the health uh, minister's office during a pandemic. And, you know, for all those people out there who think that people in political offices sit down and do nothing and take a good salary, I absolutely beg to differ. Um, if, I, if I figured out how, many, how much money I got paid per hour uh, with all the hours that it was put in, particularly during the pandemic, I would be below the poverty line on the hourly rate. Not to say that I was, but, you know, obviously I'm not complaining about the salary, but it's a big job up till 2am most days, looking at what's happening overseas, getting briefing materials together, um, yeah, whatnot. So anyway, uh, basically this whole time that I've been working in politics, it's really allowed me to have that sense that I'm making a difference in the world, that I've been able to change people's lives, both on a localised level, but then also make a difference in the direction of the country and where we're going as a, as a nation and, you know, where our community is also going uh, locally. So I'd worked on a lot of projects for sports groups for infrastructure projects um, I you know, delivered quite a lot of funding I've worked on Australia's modern slavery legislation which we should call anti-modern slavery actually but it's called modern slavery legislation um, I played a 
quite a key role in dealing with stakeholders and negotiations around developing that legislation. Um, I've worked on briefing ministers and members for many years on what it is that the people are you know, interested in, complaining about, passionate about, uh, and getting that information back to the people who can, can make decisions and make change in the world. And, you know, this whole time I have really felt as though I've had a, a sense that what I'm doing is of importance and, you know, is something greater. For me, nominating for council, it's much the same. I, I haven't um, come to this because I want to sit around and do nothing. I've come to this and I've decided to nominate because I know that I can use the skills, the abilities, the negotiation um, skills that I have, my uh, you know, tenacity and advocacy. I've got a lot to offer and I know that I can use that to help this community to continue to move forward. Ultimately, if it's not what the electorate want and I'm not elected, that's okay. I'll still be here to, to offer you know, my services to this community, which is now my home. Uh, but I certainly know I've got a lot to offer here. And, uh, and for me, it's about service. I'm not coming with particular agendas to push. I've said that from the start. I've not talked about projects that I would like to see happen, although I do have things that I would like to see happen. I think the most important thing for this community as it rebuilds, both economically following the pandemic, but also following um, a few you know, really difficult years with, with the way council's been and um, having that change to an administrator and now back to elected representatives. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's really about listening to the community and then serving that community. And that's what I'm about. It's what I've always been about. It's what I've always done, um, you know, throughout my working life. And that's what I'll continue to do. So I hope that is uh, answering your question in a long-winded way. <laughs> no, no, it's it's fantastic. It's just half you know, most of my goal of this whole medium is to understand the human. So it's awesome to hear that story. Um, in the Sentinel Times also, you have uh, just highlight little words that I grab onto me and um, delivering actual tangible results. With all that experience, what are the biggest challenges in those uh political spaces where you might have some a group of people that get to sign off on a particular decision and you know the mm. room split like what are, what are the things that really make it challenging yeah. to get a tangible result i've seen it plenty of times in the past and uh it's about give and take it's about negotiation it's about looking at uh what it is that somebody has from their perspective that's important to them and why and then coming about it in a way where we can come to some common ground and make a decision that will result in an actual outcome. Um, you know, the, when I worked on the modern slavery legislation, it was almost doomed from the beginning. People had said that it was going to go nowhere um, because there was a lot of opposition to that from both the Liberals and or Labor and the Greens. There was opposition from everywhere saying it was either going too far and not going far enough. And I played a very central and core role in negotiating with, and also a lot of the NGOs and, and not-for-profits in negotiating a common ground that meant we could see that um, 
that work that we had been um, putting so much time and energy into actually turn into legislation within one term of government, which never really happens. Um, so for me, it's about, you know, ultimately a council, I mean, this is, it's quite funny how some councils will go and say, or some, some candidates will go and say, I will do this, I will do that. All these decisions are joint decisions and they need a majority of council to go through. No person can go and say that I will do this, you know, and um, that's what I'm going to achieve because you can't. And so it's really got to go back to how these um, important projects for each of the towns, not just for, you know, one central place or for one small group, but all of these decisions across the community can be negotiated in a way and also where they meet the expectation of the community as well. So they're going to meet the expectation of the community and then be negotiated in a way where they can pass through to, uh, you know, through the councillors to be um, made into something, to be actually done rather than just, you know, a pie in the sky project or something that we'd like to see one day. And also we've got to have funding for, for all these things. And that's something that uh, is difficult to manage and to negotiate. If funding is going to something, it's often coming from something else. Um, it's not like the council will have an unlimited pool of funds um, unless you want to go into a massive amount of debt, which no one wants to do. So, yeah, it's a bit of a fine line. Um, but for me, with I think I've worked and delivered for um, local projects, probably uh, around $200 million worth of projects in my eight years. Uh, you know, things that I've advocated for, for community groups. That's everything from sports facilities through to parking, you know, through to roads, um, through to internet connections, uh, a whole range of things that I've had to work on, uh, you know, under, under elected representatives. But, you know, anybody who thinks that a member of parliament sits in their office and does all of this action themselves is diluted because that's exactly why they have staff. Um, and the staff really don't get enough credit for the work that they do in behind the scenes and negotiating to get these projects to a place where they can be delivered and where um, both the community and the government and the, and the ministers are, are happy with it. Um, so if um, in the Sentinel Times you speak about social hubs, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of candidates, uh, roads, rates, rubbish, recreation. Uh, uh -huh. not, not every child loves to grow up and play a sport, <laughs> um, no. even though it's such a big focus in, in young youth's life, but not every town has yeah. a social hub and the youth, no. not every youth uh, wants a skate park. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was just intrigued by the word social hub and why you mm. chose to bring that up in yeah. So we've we're fairly recent, I suppose. Although we've had our farm, at, you know, since 2014, and I, I kind of grew up visiting this region and whatnot. We're we're fairly recent permanent residents to the area, um, having moved our house to Lock. Um, we actually bought a vacant block of land and moved our house from Mont Albert. It was due for demolition. Um, we moved it to Lock and put it here because I wanted an old house in Lock and I couldn't find one to buy. So I 
bought a block and moved one here. But anyway, we did that in 2017 and then moved in permanently in 2019. And one of the things that stood out to me is how many young families, how many retirees and how many new business owners uh, as well as commuters have moved to the area and feel as though they're not connected. And I think, I mean, the pandemic certainly hasn't helped, but I think a big part of that is that if you're not, if you don't have the time to go and volunteer at, you know, the town hall committees and um, the business groups and that kind of thing, and you're not that interested in sport, which, you know, a lot of people are, but let's face it, not everybody is. There's, for a lot of people who are new to the area across the spectrum, there's nowhere to meet in a lot of the smaller towns. Um, some of the towns like Streslecki have, you know, um, organised little get-togethers quite regularly and I'm loving seeing that. Um, but there's just not that, that feeling that there's a community hub in all of the towns. I mean, even Curranbarra, I think, is lacking, and it's quite a large town, lacking in spaces where people can join together in community, come and meet one another, uh, be involved in things uh, that are of interest to them. You know, for me, and I said this this week, I don't know if you saw, oh, it's probably not been published yet, but in the paper I wrote a letter to the editor about I saw some rubbish and some linens on the side of the road. <clears throat> and for me, the great thing about this community is, is the people that knit it together. And the thing I think that will make it even stronger as a community and even more prosperous and an even more attractive place to be is that when those people that are here that feel disjointed can actually be involved and included and, you know, in the community, it will strengthen it even more. That, that mesh that we have in small towns and in regions such as South Gippsland will be strengthened. And I think community hubs have a place to play or a part to play in that. Now, obviously, there may not be funding available. There may be places that are already there that are not utilised as well as they could be, which I think is the case in quite a few places around um, down this way. Um, but I think it's certainly a conversation that needs to happen. I also think while we're on that, that a lot of the sports groups really have terrible facilities that need to be looked at as well. I'm not, you know, advocating one over the other by any, any stretch. Um, because that's also an important part of community. Uh, but that's something I would like to look at further if I'm elected. And you're um, speaking about your post there with the rubbish on the side of the road. That you've posted that on Facebook, which I found. Yes. Um, you speak there about um, how can local pride be nurtured and how can resources be distributed and projects be supported to see sports groups, volunteers staying engaged? Um, did you come up with any answers? Not yet. And this is a big part about what I believe is that it's important to stop and listen to the community. I'm not here to go and say that this is what I see is the problem and this is how I think we can fix it. Not until, you know, there's been a, a proper opportunity to stop and listen about what, what it is that people want. I'll give you an example about, about 
the lack of people listening uh, at government levels um, that has stuck with me for a long time. Many years ago, when I was working in Latinja Porter in the Northern Territory with the Indigenous community there, the Northern Territory government sent in a whole heap of workers to fix up housing um, that Indigenous people were living in. What had happened was that a lot of the residents had kicked holes in walls, busted out windows, um, basically made a, a mess of these houses. And to a lot of people, they stood there and said, oh, well, you know, this is why we have problems with people, Indigenous people and housing, and, you know, they, they just don't respect it, they don't care for it, and so on and so forth. And I actually said, has anybody bothered to ask, you know, why it is that, that this happens? You know, in one house there was a kangaroo being cooked in the lounge, what was supposed to be the lounge room, on, on an open fire. And, um, you know... The feeling was that there was just no respect for, for the housing that was there and for the structures that were there. So what has anybody bothered to ask the people what it is that they want? Why it is that this keeps happening? Why it is that you know every three months you've got to send in a, a team of workers to fix up these houses? And um, the response was, well, no, not really. You know, we, we have these houses, they're designed like this, and we have to keep them in a in a you know good, usable, safe manner which I completely understood so we decided that we would ask some of the people there what it was that they you know wanted in a house and why it was that they um you know kept kicking out walls and whatnot and one of the guys said to me one of the Aboriginal guys there said no one ever asked us when these houses were designed but for us we want to sit in this lounge space and have access to the veranda which was just on the other side of the wall. If the I think that he said something like, "If the blokes would just put a door there, we'd use it," but they keep building in our in our archway or something like that. And I thought, God, no one's ever asked asked the people what it is that they want. No one's ever stopped to listen. No one's ever bothered to to see what it is that these people require and need for their life in their community and um, it stuck with me all these years that that is a very very good reason why it's important to stop and listen and assess rather than just go ahead and make presumptions and uh, you know and, and assume uh, what it is that should happen um, and it's because of the, you know, I've dealt with this in a lot of community groups as well um, in Victoria. And this is why it is that I'll stop and listen and, and, and assess before making any commitments. Because now, obviously, you're never going to, you know, you're never going to make everybody happy. That's just, that's the way it is. Um, but you're certainly going to make a lot more people happy and a lot more people satisfied and a lot more people, um, you know, um, engaged, I suppose, or bring a lot more people along for the journey if it is what the community actually wants. That's sort of what I was getting to as well with this post on Facebook. It's not about the rubbish. You know, it's extremely disappointing to see. And, yes, I did report it to council and it's been cleaned up. Uh, it's actually about the, the motivation behind that, you know, dumping of the rubbish. 
Are there people that are dissatisfied because they think the rates are so high, so therefore it's their right to dump rubbish on the side of the road? Are there people that are so unhappy with the way the community has been operating that they believe that their basic needs are not met and council isn't meeting any basic needs? So therefore, you know, why have pride in this community? I don't know. I don't understand why it is that people would do that. Um, okay, granted, the tip fees probably need to be reviewed. That's something that, you know, I mean, it's funny people writing on Facebook, like, I also don't use the tip. Of course I do. And I also don't pay rates. Of course I do. Um, but the interesting thing here is that on the flip side, there are people in this town that give so much in this, you know, in Locke, in Currumburra, in Puong, Nayora, in Bina, there's people who volunteer well beyond what is required of them or should be expected of them, and they give to this community. So why is it that some people have this sense of pride and passion for, you know, seeing the best in our town, yet other people are dissatisfied? Maybe some people don't feel listened to. Nathan, oh. If we were in the same room, I'd be high-fiving you right now. I'm trying to stay out of these conversations, uh, but there's a couple of things I really need to speak to there. Um, the My small touch uh, into this community work through our town here at Fish Creek um, and thinking about how I would position myself to run for council and I was watching people nominate and I was talking about all these specific projects and it's like, Oh, I'm not ready. It's like, maybe I don't care about anything because I don't have a position on any of these things they're talking about. Um, because it's not for me to have an opinion on those things that are being talked about. I don't think if you're elected by the people, the voters, it's really their opinion on that topic yeah. that matters, not mine. Um, so that's all the work I've done here at Fish Creek is trying to gather the community's opinion and just push projects forward with that feedback, not, and really nervous about me influencing <laughs> decisions because it's not about yeah. me. Um, so yeah, I really struggled with how I would position myself because I just, uh, I just couldn't see how I fitted into the conversation that I was seeing happening at the front end of people launching. So one of them um, I like to talk about is um there's a strong push by candidates to declare a climate emergency. And um, so where do you sit in that? Uh, I'm happy to talk. My position is I just don't know enough about it yet to make a decision. And mm. once again, it's not for me to tell everyone yeah. <laughs> what we should be doing. I just need to know more. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've seen a lot of wasted time in government uh, that goes towards things that are never going to come to any, any result. The thing that I would hate to see with the declaration of a climate emergency at the South Gippsland Shire Council is that it wastes time arguing about whether we should or we shouldn't, you know, whether I'm part of that discussion or not, who will, you know, who knows, only time will tell, but whoever's involved in it, there's going to be conflicting, um, there's going to be conflicting ideals and views. I've already heard that some of the candidates completely oppose, some of the candidates 100% support and there's others that are you know on neither you know here nor there uh on it uh for me i'm not going out campaigning saying i first thing i'll do is is declare a climate emergency um it's just not what i think 
is number one for people in the region. I think there's other things if we stopped and listened that people would be, you know, wanting our council to achieve if, you know, a brand new council is there with an opportunity to make a difference. Not saying it's not important. I'm just not, I'm just not convinced that it's the number one thing that is important to everybody in this, in this region, in this community. For me, I'm, I'm big on supporting, uh, and you know, I was part of Landcare for a while, I have let my membership lapse, but big on supporting uh, farmers and residents and local groups to get in and do action stuff, plant some trees, clean up waterways, you know, get rid of the noxious weeds, um, you know, stop the erosion that's happening that's unnecessary in a lot of places. Like actually go and do some stuff. Uh, declaring a climate emergency from what I can read and what I can understand and, you know, that what I've seen in the past doesn't necessarily bring about change. Uh, what brings about change is action. And I could probably predict that it would be uh, a topic that would take up a lot of council's time and not, you know, not produce a lot of results. And I'm not actually about that. Um, the other thing is, and I won't mention which, which council, but I was involved in seeing a council. One of my best friends was the mayor of a council um, somewhere in metropolitan Melbourne, I'll just say that, who went through the process of declaring a climate emergency at a council level. And he was supportive of it, but you know, again, didn't want to spend heaps of time on it, wanted you know, to see some proper action. But what ended up happening was a lot of wasted time. Um, you know, if it's something that everyone can disagree on within the first day and say, yes, okay, it's a symbolic um, declaration, which is all it really is. And it means you know, nothing more, nothing less than a symbol that yes, we need to take some action and move on, so be it. If it's going to take, you know, hours and weeks and whatever, I'm, I just don't think that's what the community's after. And the other thing I wanted to high five you through the microphone with is um, focusing on the why. Um, I think if everyone, like, why does someone want to declare a climate emergency? Why? What does that really mean? What's the work involved in that? What is the result of it? Um, I think so many answers come from the why. So uh, you've spoken a lot from about um, what does the community want? How do you see the council really having true result-driven connection and communication with its community? Yeah, there's got to be opportunities for feedback and and. I think, you know, having a closed council or closed council meetings has probably not been the best for that. There's, there's also got to be, I mean, this has, council has to get on with the job of, of, you know, what it's there to do as well at the same time. It can't be held up all the time. Um, you know, let's be realistic. If that happened at all levels of government, we'd see even less action than we see now and people would just be eternally frustrated. So, you know, things do have to keep on moving. Um, we, we just have to be realistic about that. But at the same time, they really, I think one thing that the community here would appreciate and would like is having a space and, and a way where uh, their views could be heard and could be actioned. 
I get a lot of feedback um, and I've experienced it myself that uh, council often just doesn't reply. Uh, council laws don't reply to things, don't seem to take matters seriously. And, um, you know, that what's happening locally is not always the best solution according to the residents, but that's what you know can sometimes happen. So I think public forums is a fantastic way um, to do that. I have run public forums in the past, particularly for small business um, as an opportunity to, to come and, and air grievances and share concerns and ideas with government that often would prompt uh, actual real change. And the importance there is, you know, that you've got to have somebody who's there to listen and who actually wants to understand who can make a difference, who can make a, a change in that, rather than somebody who's there just to go, oh, I'm just doing this because it's something that I feel like I should do. And when I worked with Bruce Bilson, who was small business minister um, through his, uh, you know, his time uh, a couple of years back, he was fantastic at this. He stopped and he listened and he then implemented from those open forums uh, what it was that he could hear that the business community actually wanted. And that's, you know, we can do that on the local council level. Absolutely. Um, you know, Bruce always used to say to me, and he says it to everybody, that the world is run by people who turn up. That always sticks with me. Um, I haven't worked with him now for you know, seven years or something, but... Uh, no, maybe not that long, five years. Anyway, that sticks with me a lot. The world is run by people who turn up. That means people who are nominating for council, they're turning up here and, and, and they're the ones who are going to run this, um, you know, this shire and this, you know, this vision into the future, whoever it is that's elected. And when you look at the cross-section of people, I'm pretty confident that that's going to be a good representation. The other thing is that, the people who turn up to forums, the people who turn up to community meetings, the people who turn up to, um, you know, council to give their input, the people who sit down and write well-written, well-thought-out letters, not just hate stuff, not just trolling, but the people who actually spend the time to stop and get involved and turn up to things are the people who are going to actually run the world. Uh, and that's I mean, part of the reason why I got involved in, in politics, you know, years ago as well is because I felt like I could make a bit, bit more of a difference being involved in something rather than sitting on the outside having a whinge about it. Um, actually, I think people are over trolls. Facebook's you know, full of them. And uh, um, it's funny how people will act in one way online but not in real life when they meet somebody face-to-face. And I think that just you know, goes to show um, they're not actually turning up. Those people aren't turning up to run anything. Um, they're often just there with their little two cents worth and it's, it's you know, get involved, do something, make a difference. And then, then you'll start to see the community that you want. Then you'll start to see, you know, the municipality that we all want to live in and that we all want people to come and experience and visit and that we want to see for the future, not just, uh, you know, a place that, appears disjointed so my encouragement to everybody who wants to see a better south gippsland shire or a better town that they live in turn up and you hit on a point there that made my mind go towards um you know 
the the difference between say people in a you know keyboard warrior <laughs> backroom yeah. trolling to who they might um, how they might present themselves to you in a in a real world scenario it, it's a big piece of why I wanted to do this because it's really nice to orchestrate a campaign and do fancy billboards and have a decent budget to get your message out but yeah. you know to have a real conversation with a real person uh, I I think there's there's a lot of value in that like just yeah. a story into the political world and how to, that all started you know I think it's invaluable um, to help us all understand who you are and everyone else who's coming on here to um, yeah. to represent us and support us in our council so thank yep. you again for showing so, up you keep going that's all right Go. <laughs> I was gonna say some people probably listen to what I was saying go oh it's not for me. That's fine. That's democracy. That's that's exactly yeah. what it's about here. Um, yeah. And others will go, yeah, okay. That's that's what I want to see. That's what I understand. That's you know, and that's 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 democracy. And that's what I'm actually a big fan of as well. Is um, I hate when people throw away their votes. Do spend a little bit of time, listen to a podcast like this, do a bit of reading, and you'll soon see who it is. You know that will, um, who you believe will best represent you and your views it's not going to for everybody it's not going to be me that's fine i don't actually mind it's it's about having a good strong democratic process that elects the 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 right combination of people that will change for the better uh in line with what it is that the community wants and expects and that's what i think is important here um so i'm hoping we'll get that i think we will get that um a little thing that I wanted to mention as well is a lot of people have been doing how to vote cards, a lot of the candidates. I've chosen not to do that. I'm not in the business of um, talking rubbish about other candidates. Everybody has, I believe, put their hand up with the right intentions and has something to offer in their own way. Um, but I'm not going to go and tell people how I think that they should vote if they want to support me. And I, I, I think a big failure of our education system, but for particularly people my age and younger, is that it's not understood how to vote, that you can make your own decision. You don't have to follow a piece of paper that you can go, all right, person A, I believe in for this, I'll put them first. And person C, you know, I'll put them second, even though, you know, this candidate is telling me I should do it another way around. As long as you fill in all those boxes in, in Strasleki one to seven, and in all the other ones, one to, you know, however many candidates there are in each of the wards, that's a valid vote. Um, you don't have to follow the way somebody's telling you to vote. That's just a, a recommendation. And I stress, I really do stress, and this is a conversation I've had with young people for many years, take the time, get involved, look at, you know, this is a, this is a vote for somebody who will represent you, who will make a difference, who will make a change. Um, whether you like it or not, there will be change in the next, you know, with the next lot of councillors. So what do you want that change to look like? Stop and think and, and make a vote. Don't throw it away by, you know, by any, um, by any means. That's just, that's a waste of what we all have here, which is a, a fantastic opportunity to, to pick the people that we think will be the best representatives for us. That goes for me as well. I have to vote. You know, it's not like I don't, vote because I'm also a nom you know, nominating for council. I'll be voting and I'll be voting the way I feel that I should vote, not on the way that anybody's telling me the piece of paper that they think I should vote. And um, 
yeah, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. A valid vote, firstly, but secondly, um, you know, vote on what's right for you, not what you think somebody else is telling you to do. Yeah, I think it was one of my steepest learning curves at the front end of this exploration is um, sometimes the, the orchestration of these how to vote cards and how they come about just doesn't feel no. right. <laughs> it just doesn't feel right. Because um, I thought, oh, if I have to do it, because I just thought, oh, I'll have to do a how to vote card. Oh, if I have to do one of them, that means I really need to know every candidate really well for me yeah. to decide who I want. And it's just probably not how it's happening, <laughs> um, no. which is just really disappointing. Um, so there's already a couple of other candidates who will be on the website that links this podcast um, that have just put that statement that they won't be doing how to votes and please just go and make your own decisions. So I think that's a really healthy approach, uh, definitely. Mm. I think it's the best way to be. Um, it, it also means that people have to stop and think about what it is, you know, that they, that they want, which I think is the most important thing. Uh, get involved. <laughs> yeah, get involved. Um, awesome. Well, uh, I thank you for your time, Nathan. I'll wrap this up with my last final question. What Australian politician would you be for a day, dead or alive, uh, and why? Dead or alive? Um, I, I uh, have always thought that a really good example and somebody who I've met in person as well years ago, a really good example of a politician is John Anderson. John Anderson, for those who don't know, was the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, uh, leader of the National Party. So he was, he was an elected representative for quite a few years. Uh, I have never met somebody who I believe, and I've met a lot of politicians because of what I've done for work. <laughs> so you see all sorts, and, and I'm not the sort of person that only mingles with uh, people from one side of politics. It's not the way I operate. I, I um, have met politicians from across the board. Um, but John really, he's integral. He's always, I believe, said what he needed to say and did what he said he was going to do. And I think that's extremely important. He was a, a very good stable leader uh, and a good operator whilst he was in parliament. And uh, I would say that um, he's, a, he's, he's always come across to me as being a very wise individual. Um, I only met him a couple of times at a few conferences that I went to and listened to him speak. And I'll tell you what, for somebody who you would think is always you know, a little bit more on the quiet side, he's got a lot of inspiration and a lot of wisdom to, to, um, to, part, you know, to depart onto people. So I really like him. I think he's a, a, an integral person. I think if we had people who were in all levels of government, you know, federal, state and local, that had the integrity of uh, John Anderson as our former um, Deputy Prime Minister, that Australia would be a much better place. And um, no one's perfect. There's no politician that I've met that's perfect, that's for sure. But uh, those who strive to do what it is that they say they will do uh, and to be honest and live out their time in public service to others with integrity is, 
is you know a very good thing that we we should all want in our leaders so um nice guy quiet achiever and uh i might not be that quiet but i'm definitely an achiever so (laughs) (laughs) i can i can see i can see the appeal in just getting things done and and uh you know and in being a person of of integrity also you know a, a, a nice country um you know guy i suppose which a lot of us down here can relate to as well so yeah there you go Awesome, Nathan. Well, thanks for showing up. Good luck with the campaign and whether you get in or not. I look forward to working with you in community work on some level in the near future. Thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. And um, all the best with uh, with your podcast and with you know hearing from the rest of the candidates. I think it's a fantastic um, thing that you're doing. And um, you know, you really should be commended on it because uh, you know it does just help. Um, in a in a non-biased way to get the message out there and um, you know I could see from the very beginning from as soon as I got your email at some ridiculous hour of the morning uh, saying this is what you were going to do I thought gee that's a great idea go for it so well done yeah I hope the the value of this might show itself over time Uh, it's all a bit fresh for some people but um, thanks for being on it Nathan speak soon thank you all right see you then see all the candidates in one place so you can understand who is in your ward and who you can vote for go to craigprivet.com.au found in the show notes and the candidate you just listened to will have all their contact details in the show notes as well share the podcast far and wide and let's have a really open and transparent election bye for now